people are stupid. They're going to stay stupid, and we can't change that. So we have to talk to them as if they're stupid. I don't believe that. I just have a hard time believing that society or civilization can survive if we do believe that is the road to tyranny. Thomas is a retired businessman, politician, and a climate activist. He developed a pledge that could bring white men on board to care about climate change and help us overcome the different challenges our world is facing. This is Effective Conversations with Yael Feiner, where we explore opposing viewpoints on polarizing topics and learn to speak with courage and compassion. Hey, Thomas. So we talked about your different life experiences with business, with politics, with economy, and what did you learn from that? So the point is that all these life experiences point to the same thing. It's you go all the way around and they all point to the same node, same core issue. And the core issue is that is embedded in something that we do intrinsically, which is to validate our belief system and to validate the things that we have come to appreciate. And I, I'll just give you a quick example. When I was involved in economic development in a place where there was 25% unemployment and it was a huge challenge to, to get people out of poverty, I, I discovered after three years in the trenches there that the people, the thought leaders, and we had these massive meetings of all the municipalities and the university and the clergy and the board of trade and all the MPs and MLAs, everybody was, was represented in these massive uh, symposiums. And I once stood up in one of those symposiums and I asked the whole group, how many of you are unemployed? Please put up your hand. Not a single hand went up out of 120 attendees. Right. So the people who we were trying to help weren't even represented in the room. And it turned out that all the people in the room had a vested interest in 25% unemployment. Okay, because the, the clergy liked the fact that they were needed because there were so many poor people around. The Board of Trade liked the fact that there was no competition for the businesses that already existed. The unions liked the fact that they were powerful because they were able to lobby for the few jobs that remained. Why, why, why? The university loved it because they were retraining people into ad infinitum. So everybody had their vested interest and built their lives around a system that embedded 25% unemployment. Wow. Nobody really wanted to change it, even though everybody wanted to talk about it. Of course, let's talk about it. Right? <laughs> Let, let's say we're doing something, right? It's the illusion of engagement. We pretend to ourselves that we're actually doing something. Yeah. And right around that time, I remember David Suzuki, I was involved on the weekends with a junior high school group that started a, a recycling program at the local shopping center. They rented a big bin and they brought the kids together and people dropped off their newspapers and their bottles and stuff. And, and they, David Suzuki came to town for a, a speech of some sort. And he and the kids put a display up in the auditorium where he was speaking. And they were all excited that they were going to meet David Suzuki. And, uh, and he comes over and he looks over their wonderful handmade <laughs> display. And he turns to the kids and he says, this is all a waste of time. Recycling isn't going to fix what's what the problem is, right? The problem is way bigger than recycling. Yeah. And the kids were devastated. But he was right. And that was 35 years ago. And so recycling is fine, but me putting my blue box out on the side of the road isn't going to fix anything. No. It just creates maybe a little bit more awareness. It's one of those incrementalism step, incremental steps that we all feel comfortable about. We've done something, right? 
But the obstacles to actually doing the things that really matter are deeper than that. They're embedded, and this is go, takes me back to your point or your examples, is that we want to validate what it is that we already believe. And it used to be harder to do that during a period in the maybe the middle of the last century because our news stream was uniform. Everybody saw the same news. Everybody read the same newspapers. Everybody got the same information. And then you could have a difference of opinion about what that information meant or how it could be used or whatever, but you had the same information to work from. Now we live in silos. We can cherry pick the sources of information that we have. I remember in the 70s when I was uh, just starting uh, my first business, you had two ways of communicating with anybody. You either went to see them or you phoned them and that was it. Yeah. Right now, count how many ways we have to communicate. I mean, it's endless, right? And so there are these all these mechanisms of communication, all these sources of information that we can just we can't absorb them all. It's like at the, standing at the wrong end of a fire hose. So we cherry pick, and we cherry pick the ones that reinforce our biases and our beliefs as they already exist, because it makes us feel more comfortable. Yeah, and that's where this fundamental avoidance of cognitive dissonance comes in. So the cognitive dissonance is something that we all hate. We don't like to have, feel that at all. Yeah. So when we get some information that contradicts or throws into question something we do, we want to get rid of it. And I love Douglas Adams has came up. I don't know if Douglas Adams or not, but in, in his science fiction uh, things, he came up with a wonderful cloaking device. So you can take anything and make it invisible if you want. Mm. And he called it an SEP. Make it somebody else's problem. And it becomes invisible. And you don't notice it anymore. And so we engage in that cloaking process all the time by the choosing time, yeah. the information that we want to hear. And confirming our biases. Now, why do we do that? Because it is psychologically necessary for us to do that. If we didn't do that to some degree, we wouldn't be able to sleep at night because all night long we would worry about every single decision we made that day and whether we did the right thing or not, whether it was whether we had all the information or not or whatever, we would be constantly struggling with the complexity of our world. And so to cope with that, we simply choose to ignore most of it and only pick the stuff that confirms our biases. And uh, this is interesting because some people uh, that I know, they can struggle every day about uh, this, this to date this guy or not to date this guy, uh, you know, what to cook for dinner. And they can talk about stuff like this all day long and they can feel very overwhelmed with their life really overwhelmed with their like three kids and yes uh, to take a new job or to stay in this in this job or like day-to-day -day questions but this kind of question the climate like fundamental like existential question it's too much why this is too much and yes or no staying in this job is not too much so that's another one of the items that uh, we actually list in, in the pledge, which is that we have a propensity to deal with the small problems and ignore the big ones. 
Okay. And there's a story that's told about a, a group of people that manage a property, like a, a, a rental condo unit, a, a owner's association. Mm-hmm. And they just received a report from a uh, consultant for a $10 million retrofit to whatever, the, the roof or something. And the question is asked of this board that makes these decisions. Anybody have any questions about this report? Nobody had any questions. All in favor of spending $10 million, all the hands went up. All those uh, opposed, nobody's hands went up. Passed, the consultant was hired. The next item on the agenda was the coffee fund of this little group. And it turns out that there was $20 missing out of the coffee fund. That took two hours to resolve with lots of questions and discussion and all kinds of opposition to each other. Wow. Because they can wrap their mind around $20 missing out of the coffee fund. They can't wrap their mind around a $10 million retrofit to their whole complex. Okay. And that's what happens. So the other part of that is that as we move into a more complex world, this becomes worse all the time. That's why we're seeing the polarization that we're seeing, right? Because our bubbles become more and more important to us as the world becomes more complex. And when we look at the complexity of our world, and it's not just the communications, which we talked about a few minutes ago, but it used to be not that long ago that what you learned from your parents, you could teach to your children. <clears throat> you can't do that anymore. It's useless information, right? Yeah. The world just changes too fast. And so as a result, we have this situation where we can't keep up with the complexities of everything that we deal with. We used to be able to know how we grow our food, how we build our transportation, how we build our shelter. Those were all knowledge. That was all knowledge, how we prepare our food. That was all knowledge that we picked up from our parents and passed on to our children. This is four generations ago? Probably four or five generations ago. It certainly was, I think it was primarily maybe even a little bit longer than that because it was before the Industrial Revolution really took hold. And when we're still mostly an agrarian society. And then people basically knew it. Once the Industrial Revolution took hold, things changed dramatically. Specialization became a thing. And that's when the world started getting more complex. And again, my perspective on that is that all these things are interconnected. So wealth creation is a big part of that, which we can talk about as well. And I'm like, when you walk down these subjects, it's like going out of on on a branch on a tree. Then there's a fork and another fork and another fork. So we can go down all kinds of different forks in this conversation. But and I'm tempted to go down the the money fork. But maybe what we'll do is stick with the the information fork or the complexity fork. And the complexity fork right now is all about what used to be called Moore's Law, which I was exposed to when I started my computer business, which has now transformed into something else. I forget what they're calling it now, but it's accelerated. So Moore's Law said that computing technology and computing power doubles roughly every 18 months. And it has done so since the mid 1980s. And, and so that's an exponential growth. It's not that it increases by an X amount every 18 months. Mm-hmm. It doubles every 18 months. Well, that period now is, is no longer 18 months. It's now, as, as some people say, it's down to six months. It's definitely down to a year. Okay. Mm-hmm. All that computing technology needs to go somewhere. It needs to do something. And it's way more power and technology than we need to run our computers, our laptops, and our video conferences. So it's looking for things to do. Mm. And it is finding things to do in artificial intelligence, machine learning, ang- algorithms, automation, yeah. robotics, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. 
And, and the thing about that is that the complexity of that, again, is so far beyond what, what the average yeah. can grasp. If you listen to the CEO of NVIDIA and the work that they're doing with algorithms and avatars, and the point that he made in his last annual re report was that they are developing artificial realities in which they create artificial robots that teach, that create an artificial reality that mimics our, real, our physical reality. And the robots in the artificial reality practice how to do things so they can teach the physical robots how to operate in the real world. And he said, on average, we're going to have within just a couple of years, on average, a thousand virtual robots teaching every physical robot. And now you have algorithms teaching algorithms, okay, so that the genie's out of the bottle. Humans are no longer involved in this. Well, robots yeah. are teaching robots, algorithms are teaching algorithms. The thing has been set in motion where human control is becoming less and less and, and automation is barreling down upon us in ways that we can't even imagine. Yeah. So again, we're talking about an accelerated complexity that we live in. And physiologically, we're not set up to do that. Ronald Wright famously said in, in his 2004 Massively Lecture, I think it's famous anyway, that we can't, that we're running 21st century software on hardware that hasn't been upgraded in 30,000 years. So when you're saying complexity, you're saying that the average person can't understand or can't relate to what's going on in our world. And then we feel disconnected and alienated. We can't fix our car. We can't grow our food. We can't understand why the computer doesn't work. And even if we need it for something much simple than uh, robotics and uh, algorithms stuff, but this is the way it functions. So we can't fix our own stuff. So we are all dependent on the expertise of others. Yeah. And what and makes us most frightened is when we feel we've lost control of our world. Right. Right. We're, we're, we're not frightened in the car as long as we can hold on to the steering wheel and we're in control. If we start skidding on the ice and we're out of control, we get the world is in an environment where it's, we find ourselves in an environment where we have lost control, we have fear. And that's why fear drives pretty much everything. So that the fear, there's reasons why everybody is fearful. And it's a self-feedback loop, right? The more we have, com more complexity we have, the more we isolate ourselves and, and choose not to pay attention to most of it, the more we invoke the SEP cloaking device. And the, and the more we realize somewhere at a deeper level that there's so much out there we don't know and don't understand. Yeah. And we cling to that we do. That we do understand. Really with both hands. We hold on to it with both hands. And that causes us to be insular and polarized. Right. And the more insular and polarized we are, the less we understand, the more fearful we become, the more insular and polarized we become. So it's a feedback loop. Yeah, and, you, and, you phrase it really nice. Yeah, and that's the challenge. That's at the, at the core of everything that we face as a civilization. I believe that's our challenge. If we can't come to terms with that reality as a species, we're toast. It's that right. simple. We just, I mean, we're told Carl Sagan will be right that civilizations come and go like a flash in history. That's it. Right. Yeah. And I think that would be a shame. I, I mean, I love a civilized world. 
I, I can't tell you how much I love it. Hot shower is just such a cool thing. And I love knowing that our sun is a star and our stars are suns. And I love being able to swim with the orcas through my large screen TV. And I love the world that we've created, the, the potential of the world that we've created. We don't have to have all the negativity that goes with it. That's that we can deal with this. We can build a much better world. But you can't become an expert with all those expertise that you need to... To get along in this world you, you you can't become an expert in biology and expert in no. computers and expert in exactly and we can't learn as much as the algorithms can or as much as the robots can okay but what we can do is we can build culture and it is the culture that can adapt fast enough to keep pace with the technological advancements our What culture can do it Yeah. What does right. it mean to keep pace with the... Well, what it means is that if we have a culture where instead of using a very outdated model of learning, for example, okay, the model of learning that we have now, like I said earlier, in the agrarian age, we learn from our parents what we taught to our children. Okay. In industrial age, we started to go to school to become good factory workers. And we went to school for 15, 20 years and learned... How to fit in our yeah. recesses were at a certain time, our classes were forty five minutes long. The bells rang. We had to be there at a certain time. Everything was structured in such a way that we would be good factory workers. And in being good factory workers, we were then part of that process of the industrialized economy. We haven't changed that education in a world that isn't based on factory workers anymore. We're still training factory workers in our schools. We're still setting up a culture of factory workers in our schools. We haven't caught up. It's, if we were still practicing medicine the way we practiced it in 1910, would we be happy with that? No, but we're still educating the way we did in 1910. Yeah. So the idea of lifelong learning and continuous exploration and understanding and, and embracing science as a process, a culture that encourages that has never been built mm. right? okay. we go to school we get our degree we make a big deal out of getting a degree as if that's some final moment in life that now you are not knowing and then what are you supposed to do just go to work yeah you like can stop learning is, after is, you get is the value is it, this is what you need to do in life work yeah. well, have money yeah. well yeah and we don't have a conversation about what money is Or why we work or how we distribute the wealth that we create and how is wealth created we don't have that conversation we don't learn about where things come from or whatever there's no cultural impetus to continuously growing as a human being and in our understanding of the world that we inhabit as it increases in complexity instead we're stuck in a paradigm that was created a hundred years ago around the A factory environment where we're supposed to learn when we're kids and then stop learning and just go to work and be a minion yeah well I'm sorry but the robots are going to be the minions yeah we're no longer needed for that job even not to serve the, the machine the, because there are some restaurants no. that the human serves the machine <laughs> yeah but that's it temporary yeah. that's very temporary if we think that any job there is not a single job on this planet right now that within the next 10 to 20 years maybe 30 years we Will not be automated not one no. a lawyer a doctor doesn't matter 
how high the scale you are or how low you are, ditch digger, it doesn't matter. All these things can easily be automated. And the robots and the automation doesn't need breaks. They don't need uh, vacations. They don't need medical coverage. They don't need, and it's going to very much take over the workplace. So yeah. this idea that we can, I laugh at, at all the movements that are saying we want to create the jobs of tomorrow. There are no jobs tomorrow. We have to reinvent the way we create wealth and redistribute wealth because jobs are over. So that brings the question of who is responsible or who have the interest to keep this illusion in a way, keep selling the narrative of the jobs of tomorrow while not facing reality. And that reminds me, in that, and that is pretty similar to what's going on with climate change, that some have the interest to keep the status quo so they can keep doing what they're doing. Exactly. So one of the, one of the, another one of those sort of understandings that has sort of yes. grown within me is that I used to believe when I was young, I used to believe that this is all orchestrated by some nefarious force. Okay. Whether it's a small cabal of people or right. whether, whatever it is, the, the, mm. the, the communists or the socialists or the capitalists or the big corporations or whatever. I don't know if you remember a, a book called Exoneration. And you probably no. don't, but it was long ago, back in the 70s, how Exxon owned everything and was going to take over the world and become the power that runs everything. Anyway, it was that kind of thinking that predominated in my mind. And the more I got involved in the world, in business right. and in education and in economic development and in politics, the more I realized that there's nobody in charge. As Thomas started to mention the conspiracy theory without naming it, I felt my body tightens. I observed my sensation and my feelings. I realized that I feel a little bit hurt and judged for asking one question. And I know how often that happens. We can be labeled for asking one question alone. After my sensations dissipate, I could feel the caring behind his words. And then I was comfortable enough to let it go And just focus on what he has to say. If we don't notice our sensation on time and we ignore them, they tend to grow and get out of control. And we tend to react unproportionately to the situation. The people who claim to know what's going on don't even know what's going on. Okay? The bankers don't even really understand our financial system and how we create. People don't in what, the parts that they do understand, they try not to talk much about, because it frightens people too much. I mean, our banking system is a house of cards that could collapse any time, and nobody wants to talk about that because if you talk about it and people get frightened, then it will collapse. Mm -hmm. So you can't go there. And again, the complexity has outgrown our individual ability. So when we think that there's somebody in charge, there isn't. What there is is there's some mechanisms, and those mechanisms of self-preservation that we talked about before. Mm -hmm. If you apply that to the, for example, the unions within any industry, I don't care what industry it is. Right doomed to be automated, for example, the unions can't say, sorry, but your job is going to be gone in 10 years because they're going to be gone in 10 years. They can't let themselves go there. They have to continue to think that their existence matters. The business owners know that, yes, just like the oil industry knows that oil is over, but they can't admit that to the public because Right now, they still need the revenue from the oil in order to make profits while the transition is going on. 
That's why everybody's talking about you got to switch to natural gas. That's just a revenue stream for the petroleum industry while they, in the background, prepare for the transition. I don't know if you followed what used to be called Equinor. No, it's now Equinor. It used to be called Stat Oil, and it's now called Equinor. And Equinor is the one that's now just uh, signed the deal in Newfoundland. And Equinor is also the owner of the largest floating wind farm off Scotland. Equinor sold, before they, when they were Stat Oil, they sold their stake in the tar sands, the oil sands in Alberta, and around the same time bought the offshore wind leases off the coast of Manhattan for roughly the same amount of money. Okay. So they're doing the transition, you're saying? They're doing the transition. They just need the revenue flow in the meantime to keep their shareholders happy and make sure they have the money to keep their employees going and so on and so forth. So they have to tell the story that we keep needing oil, knowing full well that oil is over. Why can't they, like, why not to be honest about the transition that we need okay, the flow? Okay, there's a, an interesting story that will <laughs> depict that. And I don't know if you've heard this story before, but it's about the early stages of germ theory. And so what happened is that there was a situation that, that was, became really apparent where women were dying in childbirth. Yes. And they were dying twice as often in childbirth when doctors attended the, the, the birth as when midwives did. Yeah. Right? The story. And so what happened is that these doctors, the two, three doctors decided, let's test. Let's see what's going on here. There's something really wrong with this situation. So they started looking at it and they discovered that the doctors were coming from examining corpses and other people with illnesses to give birth, to help the woman with their childbirth. And so they suggested that the doctors start washing their hands and they themselves started washing their hands. And as soon as they washed their hands between patients, the mortality rate was now equal to the one with the midwife. And then they wrote a paper to the medical community. And the medical community basically shut them down and threw them out the medical society, right? Because the doctors could not wrap their mind around the idea that they were killing women through their inaction. They just, because they made an oath, we are here to, to heal people and protect people and so on and so forth. Their personal belief in themselves rested on the fact that they would never do such a thing. Yeah, identity. And so they had to now use... Uh, value alignment and to uh, overcome that cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias, which are the tools that we use, so that they could feel comfortable and in who they are. And it took a long time for that to change. And there's people right now in the medical community that refuse to get vaccinated. I mean, they make their living in an environment that is built on scientific approach to medicine, and they won't believe in it for some yeah. reason that their values align with somebody, you know, and this is the interesting thing about this. One of the things I talk about in, in the pledges is benevolent value alignment, which is what we often do. So when we have people around us who are friends, who we care about, who have a certain set of beliefs, yeah, we find it very difficult to counter that belief to confront that belief, even if it's like totally crazy. Because we love them, we care for them. So we align our belief system a little bit to them. And I think your husband talked about that in the podcast about how, the and I wrote about it in one of my blogs, exactly the same thing, how in Russia right now, if you live in Russia right now, and your whole world 
is dominated by a narrative, which is constructed by the government, but still it's the common narrative that says that nobody's dying in Ukraine and it's all a good reason. We got to get rid of the Nazis and all that kind of stuff. And everybody believes that your jaw off, your boss believes it, your neighbors believe it and so on and so forth. And you are faced with the situation. What do I do? Do I find out information that shows that's not true and not sleep every night? Or do I accept the common story and then I can go out and wash my car and plant my potatoes, take my kids to school and everything's okay? Which do you choose? And how can we point the finger at the person that chooses to live a normal life within this crazy environment? I mean, I I think it's understandable, right? I don't agree that they should be doing that. What is the difference between the people that are opening themselves to this cognitive bias and they're willing to change their mind to people that hold on to what they believe? Well, and we know that in the, in the law of diffusion of innovation, there's always the early adopters to any new idea. Then there's the early majority and the late majority and the laggards will never change. And so any new idea, it doesn't matter how small or big it is, follows that curve. And so what you have is you have a situation where there are always going to be a small percentage of people that will be protesting in the streets and they will put their lives on the line and so on and so forth at the very beginning of that curve that will stand in line for no iPhone when they could buy the same thing three weeks later at the local store. For, But know. this is something d- different, I think. When you adopt new technology, you are cool. It's a different category of people. But when you're willing to open yourself to... You, you, that you're living in a survival situation, existential situation. This is something else. Like we're talking about living in a dissonance. I, I, I agree. But you are, if you are comfortable with that dissonance, if you can accept some of that dissonance, then you are more comfortable with living with change. Okay? And that's where the two come together, are the same. They're not, it's a whole different world. Whether you stand in line for an iPhone and face a prosecution in Russia for protesting, a whole different thing. I understand that. But the mechanism by which psychologically we are able to embrace the, the dramatic changes that are necessary, that are around us, mm-hmm. the, the newness of the information and the contradictions that it forms. There's a fun thing, if you ever watch it, when Steve Jobs announced the iPhone mm-hmm. in, to all his minions of followers, all the sheep that run after him back in those days. He had to go repeat his presentation four times. It's a phone. It's an, what was it called? The iPad, not iPad, the, the, but the uh, iPad. It's a music device. It's a thing. And he, he just kept, he kept repeating. It's all those things. And people didn't get it, that it was one device. Right. Even those people couldn't wrap their mind around the fact that it was now one device. So the thing is that there are people who are open to change and able to cope with change and able to cope with the, the cognitive dissonance that it generates the new knowledge generates, whatever that new knowledge is. Yeah. But the majority of us aren't. The majority of us invoke that cloaking device that we talked about earlier and just make it disappear, right? Because it is a self-preservation mechanism. And this is where, again, I think culture comes. In order to fix that, we can't expect the people who are up the curve, the early adopters or the late adopters, the yeah. early majority or the late majority, to change. They're not going to change. Their whole life experience has brought them to where they are. That's who they are. But we can create a culture where that change, where the culture helps them to grow, grasp. This is where the culture can advance faster than the individual. 
And I think the culture is made up of so many different things. It's yes, it's art and music and all that stuff. Yeah. That's a wonderful way of communicating culture. But the culture to me is really our moral compass. And if that moral compass points to the fact that we're an all in this together, that we have to all embrace our future together, that we all have to help each other uh, understand what's going on. And that is the culture of society. That is what everyone is signed on to and expected to do. Then things change. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. It's taking back to education and like the root of things. Like how do you change the mindset instead of just the situation? How do you talk about the mechanism of our brain so we can be open and yeah. start to see what's going on around us? That's right. And I don't know if you've, if you've ever watched the movie Beautiful Mind, but to me, it's a real inspiration. Okay. And it's a true story about a, a scientist that, who won the Nobel Prize and was very, it was amazing, incredibly brilliant individual, but he was schizophrenic. And he saw people. Oh, yes. Okay? Well, I know this remember? one. It's an old story. It's an old yeah, movie. It's an old story. Old yeah, movie. Yeah. But do you remember how he coped with it? The people yeah. never went away. <laughs> yeah. I he recognized them because they didn't age. Yes. And then he was able to, he always saw them. They were always there for his entire life. But because he knew what they were, he was able to live his life more or less normally with that recognition. If we understand and help each other to see our own and each other's cognitive biases, then we can cope with them. Then they no longer drive our emotional behavior. Then they can be, and, and I think sometimes we need them. We want them. I, I love my cognitive biases at times. It's really important to me, but I know they're there. When they happen, I see them. Okay, that's, that's what that is. Is this appropriate right now? Is this going to hurt anybody by me applying this cognitive bias? No? Okay, fine. But, but it's that awareness that, again, a cultural shift could generate that awareness and our willingness to embrace that reality of human nature. I love it. So that's, that's mean that we need to do something that is actually counterintuitive. Because before that, you were saying the more the world becomes complex, the more we want to hold on to what we know. But we actually need to let go. When we let go uh, to adapt and learn and develop new ways to be in this ever-changing world, we realize how fragile we are, how vulnerable we are. Yeah, and frightened. And frightened. And here's the danger that we face with all this, <laughs> is if we don't do this, that we've just talked about, and fear is allowed to continue to dominate, then every tyrant in history has always exploited fear. Yeah. And the way you exploit it is by saying, the fear that you're experiencing and the dangers that you have are all their fault, whoever they are, right? Yeah. And when they are able to convince you that it's their fault, then they have the power and there will be human tragedy. Yeah. Right. And that is the, the danger in all of this. The, that, and, and this is, again, I, I draw on Ronald Wright's work because it is brilliant. One of the things that he pointed out is all the civilizations that have failed in the past of human history have always, in the end, gravitated towards tyranny. Yeah. Okay. 
And now democracies that, are gravitating towards right tyranny Right now too. we are. We're moving in that direction. Yeah. And all across the planet we're moving. In. Look what happened in France just a couple of days ago. It was close. And, and, but we're moving in that direction. And, and we did it with Trump. And we did it, we're doing it. We have somebody running here in Canada that is t- trying to take us in that direction. So the point is that it's a natural thing. Again, it's his feedback mechanism that takes us to a place where most of us don't want to go. But if we're not aware of the processes, the mechanisms within our society, within our human psyche that causes us to be inclined to go there, we can't prevent ourselves from going there. Yeah. I wonder for people to notice their own bias, to people to notice their own cognitive dissonance, what kind of thoughts you, you can say, oh, now this is a red alert for you to ask more questions yourself. Is there kind of thoughts like that or something like that? Well, and again, this is, in my mind, this is why it boils down to a pledge, right? To me, the idea of individuals taking a pledge that says, okay, I know now this is going on. I'm not good at it yet. I don't really understand all the psychology of it yet, but I understand that we need to do this together. We need to learn about all this and we need to embrace the, tech, the future together. And, and, and we have to recognize that we are one tribe under the blanket of our atmosphere. And so that we create a common backdrop within which we have our conversations, a common uh, framework, a common lens through which we see the world. Mm-hmm. And then once we've done that and we've recognized the points that are in the pledge, and it's a complex pledge because it covers all this to- these topics, then we can start to say, okay, so how can we help each other see these things, right? Because if I have signed the pledge and I know that there is such a thing as confirmation bias, value alignment, conformity bias, cognitive dissonance. I, yeah, I but we see it in, in the other person. We don't see it in ourselves. That's right. But once I've done that and I can start to see it in the other person, I know these forces are at work. When the other person says to me, because we are engaged in a common, looking at the world through a common lens, we are part, all part of signatories. The other person says, are you sure this isn't a confirmation bias kicking in here right now? then we might be more open to being having that pointed out to us, right? We might be more open to exploring that. And this is why leadership, and I talk about this in the pledge as well, that you, we have to believe and learn and encourage for leadership to be someone who takes us to a place of safety where we can explore these things. Leadership should be about safety. It should not be about... And right now we still think of leaders as being the powerful ones in the group. Well, that dates us back to the Stone Age. That's when our leaders needed to be the strongest in the tribe. Well, I'm sorry, but the world is not that way anymore. We need to have people who are willing to protect the safety of our culture to be able to interact with each other in a way that is constructive and supportive, recognizing we're all in this together. And so having the cultural framework in which we can function to explore these ideas is a key, is a first key. Because otherwise, exactly what you describe happens over and over again. I've seen it a million times, right? Where I'm the reasonable one and you're not. Yeah. I'm the one with all the real information and you're exposed to fake news. It's Everybody thinks that way. There's not, a, there's not a tyrant in the world that gets up in the morning and says, how can I be a bad person? They all have it in their own mind, in their own construct, the idea that they're doing something of value for their community and their civilization. Okay, so I love the idea of the pledge. Does it work for you? Did you send it to somebody that disagree well, with you? And This is the interesting thing about the pledge right now is that okay. it's only been around. I've only put it up first of March is when it was put up. So it's not been around for, for two months quite yet. So it's a new idea. And like any new idea, it's going to have some early adopters 
at the very low stage. And like any idea, there's some people that are going to sign the pledge because people they respect and trust have exactly. signed it. I get that. And, and so I think the thing about the pledge is that it may not go anywhere. I have no idea what will happen to it. It will either get a life of its own or not. And right now there, there are some people who get it, like they look at it and they get it and they sign it and they share it and they're excited about it. There's some people who I would have expected to have signed it who can't get themselves to sign it. Mm -hmm. There's one very good friend of mine, for example, who looked at it. He's looked at it many times over and over again. And he just can't wrap his mind around losing the idea of us and them. Mm. Just can't do it. He yeah. says, there are people out there that are bad. They're wrong. I, I just can't let go of that. And he knows he's stuck with it. And he's yeah. struggling with it, which is fine. But he is also, in order for self-preservation, he has to grab a an area that he's very comfortable where he can have some impact and action in a small sphere just to soothe his soul. Yeah. So he can sleep at night again. So I think the pledge may be too big for people. I don't know. I don't I really don't know whether it's able to catch on. I do know that the people who get it really get it well, but that's the case with any new idea, right? That's and also the, the the catch with st sticking with this niche with the eco chamber. People that thinks that we are all we all together in this. It's another kind of uh, coming from the First Nations idea we are all together, we are all connected. We are yeah. all uh, one. Even getting even more to the basic of the atoms, we're all one built of the same things, and not everybody agree with with that. Yeah, and I think well, or, or can find comfort the, with it. Yeah, and more to the right place in the politics, less believing in that there is right, there is wrong, and the one that are wrong even can be killed if we're talk, taking it to the extreme. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is, this is one of the reasons why I wrote the pledge in such a way that I tried to make it as, as universal as possible. I think that's the best word. So most of it is what could be called motherhood and apple pie. They're just affirmations of something that we believe in honesty and integrity and humility and all that sort of stuff. Humans tend to all want to think of themselves as believing those things. And it is complex. It requires more exposure. It requires more exploration. I certainly welcome questions about any part of it at any point in time. And when somebody is interested in learning more, that's, it's fabulous. But you're absolutely right. It may just be that it can't, it won't take off. And I have a suggestion to, to make it practical. Everyone that signed the pledge, send it to somebody that he wants to open a conversation with them. And see how it works and describe it in a whatever a Facebook page so we can learn from the shared experience of how does it work and keep adapting the pledge. Yeah. Maybe well, it should be simpler, maybe it should be, I don't know, but yeah. something that it can promote conversation. Yeah. And so he, here's the thing about that. The I've done that. I've actually, when I send the pledge out to people, when people agree to sign it, I send them a copy of the pledge and then I encourage them to provide me with any feedback mm -hmm. that they get from people when they share the yeah. pledge with others because okay. it's important because then I can put that in my Q&A page and then share it and so so forth. The thing that, quite frankly, where I am in my own gift to the world is that I don't expect or anticipate changing the pledge itself. 
I mean, I've already had people say to me, it has to be simpler, a lot simpler. It's too complex. I'm not prepared to dumb it down. If somebody else wants to try it in a different version, fill your boots, go for it. But it's it, dumbing it down defeats the purpose. We're, we're not getting into a simpler world. We're getting into a more complex world. And we have to help each other. Part of the pledge is that we're going to help each other deal with complexity. Okay. So if you sign the pledge, you are already committed to helping those around you cope with complexity. So open yourself up to questions, do what you're doing, which is organize podcasts, maybe around it, have conversations, discuss it in coffee shops, have, you know, panel discussions around the concepts behind it, whatever. But boiling the pledge itself down to something that isn't as comprehensive as what it is now would defeat the whole purpose. So I'm not, I, I think it's, it's probably already as simple as it's going to get, but what is needed now are people who recognize it, understand it, and are prepared to work within their sphere of influence to start implementing this process of collectively embracing the complexity of our world. And that's not just around the pledge. It can be around any subject. But as I say in, in, on the website is that if you're a university professor, you can have your classes discuss more about these things, right? If you're a, a member of the Kiwanis Club, you could invite guest speakers that speak about this stuff. If you're a student union body, that you can have meetings around this stuff. There's lots of ways that you can embrace the ideals that are outlined in the pledge and help to implement them in your sphere of influence. Yeah. I think that will make the difference. That will grow it. And if that doesn't happen, if there's not enough early adopters that are able to embrace it enough to do that, then it was just my idea that's a flop, which is, I've had so many ideas that have been a flop. So it's not a, nothing new to me. But I'm at a point in my life where I've done all this living and I've done all this work and I've experienced all these things and I'm a synergist. So I needed to take all that knowledge and boil it down into something that's concrete that can, in my mind, change the core of what's holding us back. Yeah. And I believe that a pledge can do that. And yeah. I think that the pledge is important. I'm sorry to go on, but this is one more really important point of this is that the pledge being public is important. Because this is one of those things that just like a wedding or a, or graduation where you pledge yourself in public to an ideal that then is on record. And because it's on record, it will be in the back of your mind in everything you do from then on out. Yeah, I, I, I feel like we touched a place that is what's hard for you to hear when I said the simple. It was kind of triggering. It was. It was absolutely. triggering. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. At that point, when I realized I triggered Thomas, I felt, okay, I made a mistake. I, maybe I did something wrong. But you know, what is trigger? We actually touch on something that is very important to the other person. It means that we arrive to a deeper place in the conversation. So it's opportunity to take this conversation to a deeper place it's an opportunity for us to connect on what's really important. And at the same time, I also learned that I was jumping to suggestions too soon. I wasn't listening enough about the pledge. And this is why when I said my suggestions, it right away got to push back. I'm sorry, I didn't want to trigger you. I realize that it might sound that I'm trying to limit and 
and make your project smaller and make it simpler. I'm realizing that by saying, let's make it simple, it's changing it and it's changing something you worked a lot and put a lot of effort and a lot of thought on it. So I'm sorry, I want to explain why I said that. And I said that because my experience with selling things, people don't buy what they don't understand that they need. But they can buy something that they know they need. And then you have the opportunity after they have something from you, you build relationship, you build some trust, you build something with them. And now there is opportunity for you to try to introduce something that is not comfortable, something that they don't know that they need, but now they might be more open and, and willing to, to listen to you. Well, and again, the problem with that is that it is a, I mean, this is the struggle and now we're getting back to life experience, but this is the struggle that I had when I was involved in politics. So the whole argument was, you've got to keep it simple. And essentially what that translates to is people are stupid, they're going to stay stupid, and we can't change that. So we have to talk to them as if they're stupid. I don't believe that. I just have a hard time believing that society or civilization can survive if we do believe that is the road to tyranny. No matter how much you say you believe in democracy, if that's your frame of reference, you are leading us towards tyranny. So we need to overcome that. On the other hand, I have somebody like Thomas Homer Dixon, right, who is a brilliant scholar and writes incredibly complex books and information that is way beyond the average person's capacity to comprehend. But he saw this and he said, yeah, of course, I lined up with that. I can give my name to that. But it is, I'm sure in his mind, a very simplistic rendition of what's what we're facing. So I, so I can tell you something that we are dealing with in trying to build businesses, mm -hmm. uh, very similar to what you're saying, maybe more in the superficial and deep or stupid or not, but superficial People want followers. People want customers. Yeah. They don't want me to tell them they're stuck or they have a fear to grow or they are the other thing that I see as yeah. a coach, as a therapist. I see something else going on. People yeah. are afraid. They have this glass ceiling about yeah. them that they yeah. afraid from success. Yeah. I can't sell afraid from success. I can't sell them uh, jump up after failure and uh, depression. No, nothing like that how to have more followers. This is what people want. And this is does again and again speak to the way that you catch people in a superficial way, like you fish them. Mm -hmm. But then when you fish them, you have to find a way to help them go through the process of understanding that what the problem really is, maybe not to find more followers, maybe to stand up for themselves, maybe mm -hmm. to say their truths, like whatever the, the real problem is for mm -hmm. them and it's mm -hmm. complex like you're saying we are mm -hmm. complex it's not for everyone it's the same because mm -hmm. if it was so simple everybody would have successful business and millions of followers and it was just easy to sell <laughs> right and this is kind of the same something that I i'm struggling now with finding a customer to understand that what they really want i need to meet them where they are at and where they're at they want more customers for example they need money yeah well, and what you're touching on is, again, a very common phenomenon that permeates business and politics, right? That the first thing, like the argument in politics that is often used that echoes 
some of this, is that all your good intentions and all your do-goodery is wonderful, which is what the political strategists will say to the politicians. But you can't implement any of it unless we get you elected. Yeah. And in order to get you elected, we have to do X, Y, and Z, and you have to do this. Okay? And then they get elected by doing all these things and forgetting about the important stuff that they wanted to do in the first place. And then once they're elected, they say, oh, yes, but it takes time. And now we have to get you reelected. So in order to get you reelected, you have to do A, B, and C. And in that process, what's really important, what the person really wanted to do, what they're really passionate about, gets washed away, gets watered down over time and eventually disappears. Right. And it's a matter, it it becomes a a, a cycle of self-perpetuation and a feed, another feedback loop of telling yourself this is what you need to do to keep doing what it is that you need to do. Rather so the than, system is stronger than the person, like the individual yeah. in That's that. Right. And this is why I've really come to the conclusion that if we can't manage a culture shift that changes all that, then you can go into a political party and think you're going to change it. You can become the leader. I ran for president of the Green Party. I did, tried all that stuff. It doesn't change. It's like a machine where you can change out all the parts and renew all the parts, machine still does the same thing. Even though all the parts are new, it still does the same thing because it's yeah. designed to do that. And so the culture shift of redesigning why we exist and who we are as a species is where it's at. And I know that's big. Yeah. I get that that's huge. And I get that it's beyond the reach of most people. And I'm counting on the early adopters Definitely. to help us to cross the chasm, as they say. We've got to get it somehow this idea to embrace a more complex approach to building a new tomorrow. We've got to get somehow the early adopters and innovators to help us cross the chasm. And that may mean, as you suggest, that somebody comes along and says, I love the pledge. It's great. It's wonderful. I think we need to do X to promote it that is really speaks to the masses better. That doesn't change the pledge. It just changes the front end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Great. Fabulous. Fill your boots. Do it. Make it go. Run. And I would be awesome. That would be awesome. This is not mine. This is my, the pledge is my gift to the world. I'm happy to support that gift in any way I can, but it's not my baby. Okay. It's not, this is not, I have a life that is complete. I have the love of my life. I wake up holding hands with her every day. I grow lots of food on our urban farm. I sail the sailor's sea. I, I'm at, at the pinnacle of my life. I'm not a young single mom looking at the future and saying, what the hell are my kids going to live in? Those are the people that I, my heart goes out to, right? The young people of today who we've left, my generation has left the world in shambles for them. And this is the best that I can do to point the way as to how we can fix that and how we can bring old white guys like me on board. So But what it, motivates you if you say this pledge is not specifically for you, it's for other people? What's for you in that? What is your motivation when well, you wake up in the morning my, and you think well, about the world? And Well, so my motivation is, and I touched on it just now, but to elaborate, is that my life is full and complete and wonderful. But it's full and complete and wonderful because of things that happen in society, not because of things that I did. 
Okay. So I love, I, in the seventies, I went, I homesteaded. I went back to the land to leave all the corporate influence and all that sort of stuff. And it was all great as long as we could dig up old, rusty, horse-drawn hay mowers out of the fields and rejuvenate them and pull them behind whatever mechanism we found to cut our hay for to feed our cows. Well, that horse-drawn hay cutter had steel or iron parts to it, which required a coal mine and a coking oven and a steel mill somewhere Somewhere. to produce. So my self-sufficiency was an illusion. Yeah. Okay. So I learned that long ago. And so the fact that I have an idyllic life in the most beautiful place in the world that I can imagine, and that I wake up every morning holding hands with my love and peace and harmony and safety and security is not my doing. It's the doing of our collective civilization. That's very smart. Yeah. And that's a benefit that I have. Well, I can't just say, well, thank you, right? And not give anything back. Um, To me, if I've learned something in all my travels and all my engagements and all my time on this planet, I have a responsibility to share what I've learned. Whether other people want to hear it, it's not my, I have no control over that. I like to say the sun shines and it doesn't care upon whom it shines. So whether some people get burnt by it or some people get a tan and some people grow crops and some people get warm and some people, whatever. The sun doesn't care about that. The sun just shines and everybody makes the best of it. This pledge is my gift in that way. If nobody sees it as a gift, then there's nothing I can do about that. But it is the best that I can produce in terms of here is something that a a consequence of all the life lessons that I've learned. And not just my life lessons, but the lessons of my family history as well. And, And so if it can catch the imagination of a small group of people that can help to lift it into a larger realm, that would be fabulous. I would be more thrilled. Can I ask you something? Absolutely. When you had businesses, were they successful? That's a very interesting question. One was extremely successful and one went through two bankruptcies, voluntary bankruptcies, but still two of them. And and a couple of them just sort of bumped along. Bumped along? Well, they weren't really successful, but they weren't really failures. They just sort of didn't go anywhere. And the businesses came from, uh, it's the same process that you're talking now, like you had an idea, it came from your understanding and you wanted to build something that you you hoped somebody else would kind of feel it's necessary too. What kind of businesses you had? Interesting. The first business I had that was of any substantial size was the was something called Eastern Carbide Tools, where we manufactured the cutting bits on coal mining equipment and salt mining equipment. And we also distributed drill bits to the oil industry, to mobile oil and others in on the offshore in, in Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. And so I didn't know anything about any of that when I started that business, but I learned how to drill an oil well. I learned how to mine for coal. I learned how to metallurgy. I learned silver wow. soldering. I learned radio induction heating and all that stuff. And that business struggled, not because it wasn't a good business model, but because it addressed itself for too long to one primary customer to try to save the money when everyone in that customer was on the take and getting bribes to buy Mm. equipment elsewhere. So that's when I was first exposed to the background of self 
perpetuating self-preservation stuff. And, and, and it was the unions and the management that were involved in that. Both were encouraging bribery and to maintain the status quo. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I know. But again, I was there. I saw it. I went bankrupt over it. And, and, and the next business, then I did a stint in economic development, which I've already shared a little bit with you. And the next business after that was in the computer business. And I knew nothing about computers other than that I bought a computer and learned about a, the first spreadsheet, my first spreadsheet ever. And the spreadsheet helped me manage my previous business in ways that just blew my mind. And so I decided that, yeah, well, I'm going to start building computers. And I first bought them and they were such shoddy workmanship when I arrived that I said, that's craziness. So I just started buying parts and built them myself. Mm. And I started in the normal business sense is that I grew and I went from nothing, from two computers on two tables in a rented space to 10 employees and two stores and 2 million in sales within a matter of 18 months. Wow. And, and then I almost went bankrupt. Wow. Because, Why? Because, well, because it was the 2 million in sales, but 2.2 million in expenses, right? Uh -huh. So <laughs> the margins weren't there. The staff was ripping me off. There was all kinds of things going on that were inappropriate. And, and then I went back to a, an environment where I said I fired everybody and got rid of one of the stores, went back to one store, and I still built my machines. I worked 18-hour days for years and years on end and uh, built all my own machines, did all my own service work, did all my own installations, and offered a lifetime warranty on my machines and took really good care of my customers and built personal relationships. And one of the wonderful stories that happened is that I took care bought somebody came in to buy a personal computer for his home and he i sold him his computer built it for him sold it to him went through the whole process and then about a month later i got a call to come to the to a meeting with the it department of the regional hospital mm -hmm. and sure whatever i'll come <laughs> and i come and then these three it guys start talking to me about my computers and then the guy walks in who is the head of the IT department for the regional hospital and was the guy that I sold that computer to. And he was so impressed with the personal care and the quality of the equipment that he instructed his IT staff that you need to look at this company and see if you can buy all your computers from them. And so I sold all of the computers to all the hospitals, including operating Amazing. Rooms. I have and a question was... there. So when you opened this computer business in the beginning, did you direct it to a specific audience or did you had a computer and it's some selling computers it's a kind of a commodity everybody needs computer well in the beginning this is where this transition happened so in the beginning what happened is i tried to learn how computer businesses run and i followed other people's models and i had my sales and my specials and you can get this much power for only 9.99 and yada all that stuff once i went through all that and almost lost my shirt again i ended up when i, when I fired everybody i had two hundred thousand dollars this was in 1980 1990, I had $200,000 worth of debt and I was a one-man band and I, that was it. And I was losing money. That was my business. So that was a tough place to be. And I decided not to go bankrupt that time. I said, I can't go bankrupt again. I have to work through this. And so I worked hard to pay off the debt. But in doing that and learning that, what I learned is that at the end of the day, it wasn't computers I was selling at all, right? I was selling trust. Okay. Okay. And within two years of going on my own, I stopped answering my telephone. I did no advertising whatsoever. And when I say I stopped answering my telephone, I put a voicemail on my regular public phone line 
And uh, it said, you can leave a message if you want, but I won't call you back. If you want to talk to me, come to the store. And I had people, I opened the store at noon every day, Tuesday through Saturday, because I did my service calls on site in the morning. And people would stand in line in front of the store at noon, waiting for me to open the store. Wow. And then I, I played classical music in the stores and I had a doctor's waiting area and people would take their turn. Uh, they, they would wait and to take their turn for me to talk to them. And, and the thing is that the reason they did all that is because one of the things that I did is when I sold them the computer, I then gave them a private line, private number. So after you bought my computer, you got a private number. And I carried a headset, I wore a headset way back when it was very expensive to have these things while I was working on computers. And if you had my private number, it would go directly to my headset and I'd be there for you 24 seven all the time. You had a problem with your computer. I was there to take care of it, but I wouldn't talk to new customers. And I used to laugh at other companies who advertised all the time because I said they have to advertise for new customers because they're too busy pissing off their old ones. Yeah. Right. And my old customers dragged people in literally. You have to come by your computer here. You have to come by your computer here. And then some people would come in and they would shop for computers or go around to different stores for those different prices. And they would come to me and I'd say, I'm the most expensive computer store in town. You're wasting your time getting a price from me if you're looking for price. Oh, he said, but down the road said that uh, he'll beat your price by 20% if I can get a quote from you. I said, great. So I'll give you a quote. I'll never supply it for that money, but I won't honor it. But just to be clear, but I'll give you a quote. And I quoted 60% of my normal price and told him to take that to the guy down the street, which he did. And the guy beat it by 20%. So he lost a lot of money on the deal because he was in this old phrase of you got to be cheap and you got to beat the people on price. And the guy bought the computer and of course he didn't get any service and so on and so forth. So a year and a half later, he came to my place again and he said, okay, I'm ready to buy from you now. I don't care what it costs. Get sell me a computer. <laughs> so that's how I built that business. It was extremely successful. I made all kinds of money. It was, it built a big part of my, my equity in my life. And I had it for 13 years. I sold it to an apprentice. I passed it on to a guy that I hired off the street who had no job, no training, no nothing. And I helped him learn and build it to a place where he then bought it for me over time. And it set him up for life. Amazing. So. What I'm taking from your story, it's really connecting to our climate story, is that we have to build trust and relationship. If we want right. to sell this story of climate crisis, complexity to somebody that is afraid from that and it's threatening them, Yeah. The first step is building a relationship, giving the phone number and say, whatever happens, you can call me back and yeah. you can trust me that you're not alone in this complexity, that you're not right. alone in this problem. And then exactly. I love and, it. And this is, where, this is where if we build the pledge and if there are a million signatories to the pledge, okay, then there is a community out there that has already committed themselves to helping you. These are no all... No community, one person... I send it I to you and I give you my number, right. one person, yes. and no, then I'm it can you. work. Okay, fine. I'm with you. And I've give my, I've give my number. I give my email. Yeah. And, and everybody else can too. But I do it because I am committed to helping others deal with the complexity. I'm not committed to making the complexity become somebody else's problem and giving you simple answers. That's Trump's job. I don't do that. Yeah. And so that's, I think you hit the nail on the head. That's what it's about. And if we can do that and if we can inspire, and one of the phrases I use in there is to inspire others. 
which is exactly what you just talked about. So you you one on one, one each one teach one, right? Each one open their world to one other person. Each one speak to one other person. Each one and have be accessible to one other person to cope with the complexity. Hundred percent. Thank you for listening to the Effective Conversations podcast. Please reach out to talk about how we can help you and your organization transform conflict into cooperation. Don't forget to share the podcast to support others in healing their hearts, the divide, and our planet.